and uh, good morning, Grace Point. It is good to be uh, with you this morning, on this uh, Sunday morning, this Lord's Day. And it's been good to, to pray with you. It has been good to, uh, to sing praise songs with you this morning as well. And, uh, and even thinking about uh, that, just this, this morning, and even, you know, you have your, your bulletins, kind of the order of service. Even the very thing that we, we do, the, the order and flow of, of what we do when we gather together is actually very reflective of what we're going to do this morning as well. And the topic that we are going to consider that both Keith and Jack have, have referenced, the matter of speech, to about how we begin our, our service off really with, with the call to worship. We go from the call to worship to these, these praise songs, that we begin with God's word, that God says something so that we might know how to respond. Uh, and that's really what we're doing this morning as well, is we're going to be considering the topic of speech. We're looking at what does God have to say about how we should use our mouths? What does God have to say about how we should use our speech? That he is our ultimate authority behind all that we can live and do. Um, so we'll be considering that this morning. We've been going through a, a number of, of topics, even profiles, uh, through the book of Proverbs so far, with the fool, the simple, uh, the mocker, the sluggard, the friend. And uh, this morning is a little bit different aspect of a profile where it's not so much of a person as much as it is a, a practice, something that we do. And Proverbs has a lot to say about how we speak indeed. Uh, and so as uh, we, we look into our, our text this morning, uh, we'll be in a, a number of different places in Proverbs like, like we have been over the last number of weeks as well. Uh, but specifically for our reading of the word, we'll be in Proverbs 6 uh, verses 1 through 5. Then we'll skip down to verses 12 through 19, and then we'll skip over to chapter 18 and verse 21. That will be our scripture reading this morning. So I'd invite you to please stand uh, for uh, our reading of God's Word, just an act of, of submission to the authority of God's Word. And we'll begin reading from Proverbs chapter 6, starting in verse 1. It says, My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor have given your pledge for a stranger? If you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go hasten and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Verse 12. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. In chapter 18 and verse 21, it says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. And God, as, um, as, as we hear from your word, we pray, Lord, that you would soften our hearts, give us ears to hear, give us minds that perceive and understand, Lord, not simply so that we might know it, but so that we might follow after you with our whole lives. 
Lord, we need your aid. We pray that your Holy Spirit would do this work within us, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Well, how many words do you say each day? Well, probably depends. I have known some people that I have little doubt can say more in one minute than I can in ten, even though I know I do speak quite quickly sometimes. I know others as well that it feels like I am trying to pull teeth to try to get them to share five words. There was a study done by the University of Arizona years ago that showed that some people say less than a thousand words a day. It's really not very much at all. While some spoke nearly 50,000 on an average day. That is quite the gap. Overall, most individuals apparently say around 15,000 words each day, though. Think about that. 15,000 words on average we say it feels high, but studies show. I didn't count. How many of those words, though, carry, we think about that great number, how many of those words really carry great weight with them? How many do we think about before they are unleashed into the open? How many are harmful or biting? How many are uplifting and helpful? How great are our opportunities to do something meaningful knowing that we do something 15,000 times a day that as we'll see and perhaps already know that carries with it significant power. Even the power of life and death. It said there in Proverbs 18.21. So what we're going to look at over the course of the next few minutes here in Proverbs is that because the, the tongue does have the power of life and death, And our call is then to pursue truth, to pursue restraint in our speech so that we might find life. So what we're going to do is is we're going to look at the the reality, the truth of how in the tongue there is great power. In speech there is great power. And then take a look at two areas, two spheres that Proverbs speaks of over and over again that are so important for us to know when we consider how we use our speech. And that is with with deception, and also with restraint. First thing we're going to notice, though, is the power of the tongue. And from the very beginning of Scripture, the power of speech is emphasized. Genesis 1 describes how God created the heavens and the earth. And in the freedom of God, he could have chosen to create in any number of ways. But how did he choose to create? By speech. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God created out of nothing by speaking light, by speaking life into existence. And God has, by his grace, endowed us with the ability to speak, setting us apart from the rest of his creation on earth. As God has stamped us with his image, we can use words actually to create to create trust, to form relationships, to name and build community. Yet unlike God, we use the power of our words to sin. We use the power of our words to deceive and to destroy. It's just two chapters later in the book of Genesis, there in the garden where we see this dark usage of speech to bring about evil. 
Here the serpent uses his tongue to deceive, to cast doubt into the mind of Eve, using his words to persuade her to sin, using his words for destruction to conceal the truth. We have followed this path. And then outside the garden, east of Eden, this is the pattern. Powerful words, words which brought peace and kindness, like Boaz speaking kindness to Ruth. Yet powerful words which bring destruction, like Pharaoh's stubborn refusal to allow God's people to worship him. The weight of the biblical theology of of the tongue is matched by the, the author of Proverbs. Solomon knows this. He knows the weight of speech. He knows that it has begun from Genesis 1, the importance of how we use our tongues. Approximately 90 Proverbs concern what we do with our speech. More than any other topic, including the family, including money. Speech is the one theme that is given over and over again to our attention. In Proverbs 6 that we read earlier, there are those seven abominations. These seven things which the Lord detests or that he hates. And I don't know if you noticed, not three of them concern the usage of speech. Then again, put clearly, Proverbs 18.21 says that death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. The profound power of words can really be found in in two areas, two aspects where it's it's most clearly seen by us, at least. The first is seen in, in how incredibly deep words go. There's something so significant about the depth to which words can penetrate into our very being. Insults that were hurled at me when I was younger have left indelible marks uh, upon me and even in who I am today, both good and bad. You can really pummel someone with your fists and it leaves behind less destruction than pummeling someone with your words. Proverbs 16, 27 says that, that a scoundrel plots evil, and on their lips it is like a scorching fire. A fire it consumes. It entirely burns up. And so too the tongue has a way of impacting every square inch of who we are, to the innermost being, from how we see ourselves to our very own soul. Likewise, Proverbs 15.4 says that a gentle or healing tongue is a tree of life. The words of the gospel can heal a person who is wrestling with the darkest of sins. And so the stakes cannot be higher when it comes to how we use our tongues. James further develops this notion when he says that the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. But not only is the tongue powerful in its depth, but how broad words impact go. When was the last time that you heard of a church being destroyed by a murder? When was the last time you heard of a church being decimated by gossip and words? Then even on the opposite side of this, the destruction is broad and wide. But Proverbs 11, 11 says, By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. By the mouth of the wicked, 
it is overthrown. The tongue has the power to bless an entire city, but also has the power to overthrow a city as well. So what do we do with this powerful beast? This member that can consume with fire, that can bless a city, that cuts to the quick. Proverbs covers a wide range of topics with how we use our tongue, but two categories are mentioned above all others. These are the issue of of deception and truth, and the use of restraint with our tongues, which we will dig into here in a moment. But Solomon, he, he summarizes all of the ways in which we, we misalign ourselves with God's wisdom in our speech. He repeatedly and broadly refers to it as crooked speech. 424, just one example of this. A word used to describe a, a road or a path that ought to be a straight line, but takes every which way, but takes one every which way except for straight. Solomon describes a number of of matters, including the heart as crooked and man's thinking as crooked. And the image is that of God's wisdom being that which is the straight line from heaven to earth. And we have taken that which is on earth and directed it elsewhere. When I was in high school, there was this game that a um, good friend of mine and I, we used to play. So this was in high school. Uh, my friend was the, the starting varsity quarterback at the, for high school, and I was a wide receiver at the time, and we both had pretty good arms, and we would stand about 10 to 12 feet apart from each other. We would take a football, throw it at each other as hard as we could, and we, would, we had good enough accuracy. We'd get it pretty close. We would just have our hands up and ready. We'd just kind of work on reactions a bit with it. We would throw it pretty hard, though. And as we're doing this and going back and forth for a while, uh, he throws one to me, and it was a little down and to the left a little bit. still remember, as I had to move just a little bit down to the left, the, the point of the football hit me right on my left pinky finger. Well, I just, I didn't think anything of it. I just went and I, I didn't catch it. I went and picked up the football and got back to my spot and threw it at him as hard as I could, uh, maybe with a little bit more emotion that time. And, and then he's getting ready to throw it to me again. I said, wait. Hold on just a second. I got to look at something. I look at my hand, and my pinky is going 90 degrees, just up and straight to the side. It was crooked. (laughs) It was dislocated is, is, is what was happening with that. didn't mean to gross you out with that. But here's the thing, that, that, that image of a pinky finger is meant to go straight. It's supposed to go straight. And it's not just that something's inconvenient when it's crooked. It's off. It's wrong. It is not functioning the way that's supposed to. I could not function until that doctor set that back in place. And this is what our speech often looks like. Dislocated, bent, and crooked. Failing to bring it into accordance with how God intended our speech to be. Proverbs 8, 8 and 9 says that all the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them, they are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. So we are called to pursue this straight path. First, in, in truth. Again, something that the author makes mention of over and over again. The importance of truth. And the enemy of truth is deception. Falsehood and deception has been the enemy of God, as we said before, since the garden. It is wicked from the pit of hell. Jesus said that the devil is a liar and the father of lies. Our veering 
from the truth in order to protect ourselves from conflict, in order to make us appear different in others' eyes, or even without any real reason. This is a satanic practice, is what Jesus says, and a habit which we can so easily fall into. What more does the Lord need to say in order to clarify his position on deception than Proverbs twelve twenty two, where he says, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. An abomination. It's a level up from simple hatred. It is not only wrong, but I was saying it is impure as well. God's judgment over deception was very clearly seen in Acts 5. Remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira, as the, the early church, as all the, the members of the early church were selling all of their possessions and giving the proceeds to the church. And Ananias and Sapphira, they wanted to, 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 to be in on that. They wanted to, uh, to, uh, to give what they had to the church as well, though they chose to, to keep some back for themselves. They had that right to do that. But they told the apostles, they probably told the church they had given everything they had sought to deceive them, to give one impression toward them that was, that was false. And how did God respond to this? And Peter said, you have lied to God. You have lied to the Holy Spirit. And both Ananias and Sapphira were dragged out of that room because they were immediately struck dead. Why does God hate it? God hates deception. Because it's destructive. Deception is destructive. Proverbs twenty five eighteen says, A man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a war club or a sword or a sharp arrow. One area where the destruction of deception and lies have made it into the public conversation recently concerns a report about Ravi Zacharias. Maybe be familiar with him. Heard that name before. Those who are unfamiliar with Ravi, he has a, a decades-long apologetics ministry where he would defend the faith, defend the argument for existence of God, for the existence of God and the, and the resurrection before hostile groups on college campuses, among other places. He had a way of using incredible precision to dissect an argument and to provide the clear biblical answer to their protest. While there were reports of Ravi's sexual misconduct before he died this past year, reports and allegations of gross sexual abuse have since been verified. And the abuse will have long-term consequences for those affected, those who need our prayers. For years, Ravi was not only committing heinous sins of a predatory nature, but was deceiving others, whether it was his victims the board members of his organization, or those who would listen to his speeches and talks or read his writings. Ravi died before he publicly repented. I do not know what awaited him when he stood face to face with the Creator. But what I do know is the incredible wake of destruction in the path that was left behind. The war club that was taken to others' lives. At its lightest, the fallout includes the, you know, the removal of books from bookstores and, and his talks and articles. Resources, which have indeed helped thousands of Christians, are now rendered alive because of Ravi's deception. There are people who came to faith through his ministry, 
who are now facing doubt about their salvation and truth of the gospel on account of this decades-long lie. Lies use people instead of loving them. We exploit others' gullibility or even their trustworthiness to our own ends, for our own purposes. The writer said that it is a, a coward's way of getting out of trouble. We might be thinking to ourselves, oh, this is an extreme case. What does this public figure's deception have to do with my not-so-public life? We, too, can take a war club to the relationships which God has placed in our lives. We, too, can fall into patterns of deception. Perhaps we have our own secret and concealed sins, sins which we think no one else knows about. We watch things. We quickly hide away from others, should they see. Since people have been working from home and students have been doing their schoolwork at home, I have little doubt that deception is on the rise, whether it is because cheating at school is so much easier now or pretending you are working when you are actually absent. We think we are protected from pitfalls, but we aren't. How often do we fail to tell the whole truth by omitting information or exaggerating? Do we agree with people when we really don't, just to preserve a relationship or avoid conflict? We may not be trying to intentionally hurt someone. It may be because we simply wish our deception was true, so we'll pretend that it is. But that doesn't take away from how God feels about deception nor the end result of more damage than benefit. If we think there will not one day be a wake of destruction on account of how we have deceived others, then you are currently deceiving yourself. Proverbs six twelve through 15, again, verses we read earlier, says a worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. We think our patterns of deception are not as harmful as they really are. We deceive ourselves if we think that our own reputation is secure if it is built upon lies. Honesty is hard. We have to work hard for honesty. And back in Proverbs 6, the first five verses, a passage you might thought was kind of strange. It says, My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. A man pledges to give money to a neighbor and later realizes that he is unable to do so for one reason or another. His integrity is on the line. His faithfulness is on the line. His honesty is on the line. He is to pursue his neighbor to try to get out of the pledge so that he does not owe him future money. Among the points of this proverb is that honesty 
and truthfulness is something we have to pursue at all costs. We breathe air in this culture that says lying and deception is okay. There's one survey I found conducted at Microsoft years ago that said 75% of the workers admitted they feel they are forced to lie at their workplace. 75%. According to multiple leading secular ethicists and in a few articles that I saw on psychology today, intention is the primary dictator between right and wrong concerning deception. Not if you actually deceive them or not, but what did you mean to do? And then, if you're really trying to help them, then lying is okay. Or to not hurt them, then lying is okay. To work for honesty means to lay your pride down at the altar and daily die to self. We so easily go into self-defense and self-protection mode that we fail to see clearly. Honesty means admitting failure. Honesty means reconsidering our excuses. Honesty means the end goal is not to come out on top. It is not to avoid hard conversations. Rather, it is to glorify the God who is truth. When Jesus told his disciples that he must go to prepare a place for them in heaven, Thomas asked Jesus how they might know the way. Jesus responded to him by saying that he, Jesus, is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Jesus doesn't simply have the truth. He is the truth. He is the truth in contrast to the lie. He is the real in contrast to the fictitious. When we, pers- when we persevere for honesty and truth, we persevere for Christ. In Proverbs 24, 26, he, it's not just when speaking of, of avoiding deception but the glorious realities of truth. Proverbs says, whoever gives an honest answer kisses the lips. Kind of a strange figure of speech for us, certainly. But the kiss that is being described is the kiss of, of friendship, something that we talked about a good bit last week. Uh, the kiss of Jonathan and David, the kiss of Ruth and Naomi. And much was said of this last week concerning the friend, but how often have we, who have considered ourselves friends to others, resorted to flattery? instead of bearing the truth with others. Flattery is an enemy of the truth. It puffs up so that something might be gained. Perhaps what is gained is merely avoiding conflict. Perhaps what is gained is to be more highly thought of. And Proverbs 10.11 says, The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. The mouth of the wicked conceals violence. That is important of pursuing truth, Proverbs say. Paul says that we need to pursue restraint. Another large category given by the author of Proverbs, and it concerns the, the quantity of our words. Proverbs 29, 11 says, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Simply put, the more you say, the less you get to listen to others. The more you say, the less people will want to listen to you because it's more diluted. The more you say, the more interested in yourself you appear. The more you say, the more people can hold against you. That's just pragmatic. But this summarizes the need for restraint by Solomon. And not only does the one who gives full vent to his spirit act like a fool, but it says in 12.18 that there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. 
It is not the one with loose lips who is injured, though that can be the case, but those around them. Rash words are so destructive because it means we have failed to see speech for what God says about it. Words are powerful. They affect us in the inner man and can bless or burn a city. Rash words speaking without thinking denigrates words to something less in our minds. They are not that powerful. Jesus speaks to this as well, showing the importance of using restraint in speech, saying in Matthew 12, he says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. That's humbling. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. With all the modern day technologies, many of them causing great harm really to human relationships, I wonder if relationships have been saved because of the high usage of the text message. You can now edit what you are going to say. Go over it a time or two before you send it out. Ask your wife if it seems to be accurate. However, letter writing even more so meant you had to be sure of every word since there was no back button. So you had to really be sure. Is this the word I want to say or I'm going to have to scribble this out? How often have we said a word that we immediately regretted? Commented on a situation without knowing all the facts. Expressed how you felt in a way that insulted people around you. We thrust swords without even realizing it. Causing wounds without batting an eye. Will Durant is a famous historian as famous as a historian can be, I suppose. He said this. He said, talk is cheap because the supply always exceeds the demand. One of the lessons of history is that nothing is often a good thing to do and always a clever thing to say. There's a scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail where Sir Lancelot, it's a comedy, by the way, where it's supposed to be, where Sir Lancelot is trying to stop this wedding from taking place. He doesn't know the people at the wedding, but is stopping it on someone else's behalf. He goes into the castle where it is being held and simply, if you remember this, starts stabbing everybody, including grandmothers and the priests and everyone else who is within arm's reach. It is obviously this preposterous scene. When we realize, though, the power that the tongue wields and that we use it with such little restraint, It's really not as crazy as it sounds. There's life found in restraining our tongue, being measured to speaking an apt word as opposed to simply the first word. Proverbs gives us two clear ways to pursue godly speech. First is to study. Proverbs 15.28 says, The heart of the righteous ponders, also to translate that, it meditates or studies how to answer. But the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. This is picked up later in Isaiah, where the prophet says in chapter 50, that the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The more we fill our minds with the mind of Christ, the more we will reflect how Christ spoke. Christ never 
uttered a useless word. He was never silent when he needed to speak. His words are always apt and full of truth. And grace upon grace, where you and I have deceived, Christ spoke truth. Where you and I were speaking with rash words left and right, Christ speaks an apt word, an appropriate word. And the grace of God is that where we have failed, Christ has been shown to be righteous and gives us that righteousness. So that even as we are hearing these words and we are wrestling and we are struggling and being convicted as as I am, that Christ ultimately is our righteousness. That he spoke perfectly for us. And we receive that righteousness by trusting in him. Secondly, not just for us to study, to study the words of Christ, study God's word, but it's for, it is also for us to consider our character. Proverbs 4.23 says, To keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Our mouths merely project our heart's content. Or put more colloquially, what's down in the well comes up in the bucket. As you meditate on how you use your speech, do not merely try to put a band-aid on a flesh wound, but pursue why you have such a need to be seen in others' eyes in a particular way. Who is it you are ultimately trying to please? Why do you feel such a need to speak without restraint? Why is the value of always having something to say, why is that there for you? So let us leave here this morning knowing the incredible power that is given to us by God in the form of the word to pursue words of truth and to pursue restraint where it is needed. The truth of the matter is we must consider what we say because God has spoken a word for us. He has spoken a word to us in his son. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God's word is truth and was not wasted, but was given us new life in him. Let's pray. Lord God, Lord, this is a weighty matter, and Lord, this is a convicting matter. God, there is not one of us who is here in this room who is fully obedient to what the Proverbs tell us to do, Lord, concerning our mouth. God, I pray that where you have brought conviction, I pray, Lord, you would give the boldness to pursue righteousness for Christ's sake. And God, I pray that you would grant us the faith that we need to trust in Christ as our perfect and spotless lamb for who he is. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.